You'll be turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. Matthew chapter 21. Today we'll be looking at verses 23 through 27. If you found your way there in Matthew chapter 21, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. When he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the perfect example of Jesus who handled every situation correctly, who always acted righteously, who always accomplished your will. And Lord, as we look at his example this morning, we know that there's much that we can learn, more more than we will even have time for today to learn from your word. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding, uh, that we would not have uh, hardened ears or hearts uh, as the Sanhedrin did in this passage, Lord, but that we would hear what you would have to say and receive it with gladness. We thank you that your co- our confidence today is in your ability uh, to do this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you're visiting with us this morning, or if you've only been here for a few weeks, one of the things that you may not uh, know if you're not familiar with our preaching here is that uh, we are not a political organization as a church. Uh, we don't preach uh, politics and parties and cultural issues and news headlines from the pulpit here. We preach verse by verse through the Bible. That's something that we're committed to. However, uh, we believe that the Bible is just as relevant today as it always has been, and that uh, truth is truth, and that whether God revealed truth 2,000 years ago or whether he is uh, showing us today through his word, uh, it rings just as true today as it has for thousands of years. And so one of the things that we see this morning is there is an application in this text for us in this uh, season of our lives in the culture that we live in today in 2021 and going forward. We believe that the Bible only has one interpretation, but that it has many applications. Uh, it means what it says it means. The words have meaning, uh, as we so appropriately read earlier from the catechism question. Uh, the Bible was written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The words that they choose to use and the way that they choose to use them are not accidental, and that's not according to the disciples' will or the writers of Scripture, but according to the Holy Spirit. So we believe that things mean what they say and that they say what they say for a specific reason. However, as we know, uh, we can clearly understand the meaning from the language itself it is applied in a lot of different ways. We've, we've all know this. How many times, if you're a Christian, have you read a verse that maybe you've read a hundred times and something just jumps out at you of, wow, I, I never really saw it that way, or wow, this verse really applies to me in a specific situation that I'm in. And the reason why is because the, part of the work of the Holy Spirit is doing what we call illuminating the Scriptures. He gives us understanding and increasing and greater understanding the more that we study. So as we, go th- we've, as we spend probably about two and a half years through Matthew, you are not going to know everything that is in Matthew, and you're not going to be able to apply everything that is in Matthew. That is a lifetime of study uh, of people who have devoted much more time and energy than any of us have, uh, have not exhausted the Scriptures. And so while I would love to do that for you with this text this morning, there's just so much here uh, that even myself studying, I'll be honest with you, uh, as I preach this this morning, there are some things that I have more questions about than I have answers to. 
as far as applying this text. And so my hope is to give you a few things to consider uh, with the understanding that there's much more uh, to consider in this text. The title of the message this morning is called When Governments Collide. When Governments Collide. Christians are a pro-government people. This has always been the way from the beginning. This is also the example that we see in our Savior Jesus, that we are pro-government. The Bible teaches that the civil government is ordained by God, that all authority in the civil government is given by God. What is the role of the civil government? The Scripture says that that the king does not bear the sword in vain, that the civil government is designed for the restraint of the wicked. We understand that it is not the church's job to enforce uh, capital punishment on criminals, for instance. If someone uh, robs you or someone kills someone in your family, according to Scripture, it is not your job to exercise vengeance on that person. But God has given the civil government authority uh, to impose the law on wicked people and to restrain the wicked. And so we are a pro-government people. We think that God-honoring good biblical government and law enforcement is biblical, and we support that as Christian people, and Christians all throughout history have supported that. We also recognize that as Christians, we have a dual citizenship. Uh, Most of us in here were uh, born, well, all of us in here were born into a nation, right? Whether that's the United States or somewhere else, and as one who's born into that nation, you become a citizen of that nation. And so you have rights and responsibilities that come along with that citizenship. We also understand that as a believer, you are born again into the nation of heaven, into the kingdom of God, and you have rights, privileges, and responsibilities that are also associated with that. And that these two things, while we are in this life, uh, we ha- we, they have to work together. And so long as they work together, everything is great. And most of the time they do. But what do we do when governments collide? What do we do when our two citizenships disagree with each other on who we are or what we should do? This is an issue that we live in today because, unfortunately, the climate of our current civil government seems to be becoming more and more antagonistic towards the kingdom of heaven, and yet we are citizens of both. So how do, how do we coexist this way? Well, I want to give you some examples from Scripture real quickly. Uh, There was a baby once named Moses, and the civil government said, uh, there are too many Hebrew children, so we're going to kill all of the male children to reduce the Hebrew population. They decided that they were going to use, um, some could argue, a form of abortion, essentially, to control the population of God's people. And in doing that, they rebelled against the civil government by putting a baby in a basket and sending him down the river and praying that God would preserve his life. And not only did God preserve the life of Moses, but he did that of his whole people. We see the three Hebrew children uh, in Daniel who stood before the king of that time and said, uh, we are not going to bow down to your idols or participate in your religion, and our God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we still are not going to practice your religion. And they rebelled against the government. We see Rahab, who rebelled against the government when she hid the spies. When the civil government came and said, there's people in here that we want to get, that we are trying to get God's people, give them over to us. She lied and hid the spies, and uh, Hebrews list her as a righteous one for doing this. Um, In the intertestamental period, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years of history. Part of that history is what we call the Maccabean Revolt. It's where the, the Jewish... Uh, holiday of Hanukkah comes, which Jesus actually practices a couple chapters later here, I believe, in Matthew when he celebrates Hanukkah. This was when the Roman government came in and slaughtered a pig in the temple and defiled the temple with swine to mock the God of Israel, and the Maccabean family led a revolt that drove the Romans out of the temple and reconsecrated the temple to God prior uh, to the Gospel of Matthew here in history. We see an example in the beginning of the Gospels with John the Baptist, who was not authorized by the Jewish government to be doing a baptism of repentance or to be holding services publicly or to be uh, calling even governmental leaders like Herod to repentance, and yet he did that anyways. There are some biblical examples. What about 
some modern examples. There's a pastor in Canada named James Coates that maybe you've heard of recently who was arrested for holding services when the health department said he wasn't allowed to. And he has since in some ways been vindicated of that. There's another pastor you may be familiar with. His name's John MacArthur. His church recently won an $800,000 lawsuit against L.A. County for restricting their religious worship services because they refused to stop gathering in the midst of health department regulations. Another pastor, Mark Dever of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., recently won over $200,000 from the government of D.C. because they were being religiously discriminated against by allowing outdoor activities to happen except Christian worship. They won that in a case. This is an issue that we have to deal with. We're in Haywood County. It's a rural county. We have to deal with this. This is coming. How do we think about this? We don't need the answer from philosophers. We need the answer from Jesus. Now, there's a lot of things in this passage that we can look at, but this is something that I think is a timely word for us today. There's a theme in Matthew of authority, if you haven't picked up on it. The, 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 the central theme of the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus is King. This is the theme of the whole Gospel of Matthew. You may remember earlier with the centurion, there was this conversation between Jesus and the centurion over authority. And what did the centurion say? I have people that work for me, and I know that I have authority, and if I say that it's going to be done, then it's going to be done. And what does he say to Jesus? You don't even have to be in the room to heal my servant because your authority actually extends beyond what you can even see with your eyes. And so if you say that my servant is well, then it's done. And Jesus said that he had great faith. Why? Because he understood the authority of Christ. We need to understand that authority this morning. So what's the context of this passage? In this passage, we're going to see just a a few paragraphs earlier, Jesus cleansed the temple, right? He went into the temple. He drove out the money changers from the temple. Obviously, this is causing a stir. He had already caused a stir at the beginning of chapter uh, 21. The word, the, the word is used by the Bible that the city was stirred up with his triumphal entry. So Jesus is coming on the scene in a big way. He's been quiet. He's stayed out of the limelight for a while. He's, he's tried to avoid that. But at the beginning of chapter 21, when he comes in Jerusalem, he is not asking for permission to exercise his ministry in Jerusalem anymore. He is coming in according to what we just read in Isaiah as the king, and his government is increasing in Jerusalem at this time. He's basically taking over uh, is what he's doing, and that's what we're seeing happening. The problem is there's an existing government there. That's the government of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, which for the Jewish people was their civil government. They have a problem with Jesus riding in on a Zadonki as the king of Israel and coming into the temple that they administrate and telling people what they can and can't do and what God has and hasn't said about what they're doing. You can imagine the anger here. This is probably on Tuesday of Holy Week, so we're only a couple days short of the crucifixion of Jesus here, and you can see the intensity ramping up uh, to this crucifixion uh, where Jesus is now basically full throttle provoking the religious leaders with his actions and knows that he's doing that. So there's a few things I want us to notice in this text. The first is his eminence investigated. In verse 23, his eminence investigated. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So we, so we see two forms of authority contrasted. That's what this conversation is about. The first, we see the authority of men. Who, who are these men? This group of the chiefs, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, these others comprised what's called the Sanhedrin, which was essentially, if you think about it, um, similar to like a Senate or like a Supreme Court of Israel. These were the highest officers in Jewish government. They were experts on the Old Testament. They were experts on the traditions of Israel. And they called the shots. They said who wasn't, wasn't allowed to teach. They said what kind of ministry was and was not happening in, in the temple at that time. They were the liaisons between the Roman government and the Jewish people. They had a lot of responsibility. These are, these are the big wigs. They're the top dogs. And they're asking Jesus, by what authority are you doing what you're doing? And specifically in this passage, they're referring to the cleansing of the temple. Who are you to come into the Jewish temple and... And he didn't ask people to leave. Uh, go back a couple weeks ago and watch Pastor Chris preach on this. He made a, a, a whip and drove people out. Now, I don't know about you, but 
if somebody comes running, if a grown man comes running at me with a whip, I'm not going to interpret that as, as friendly body language. This person is not friendly towards me. This is the response that Jesus had. He's turning over their tables. He's ruining their business. He's disrupting the entire temple ministry by doing this, and he's doing it publicly. And these guys are standing on the sidelines going, what in the world is going on? And so now that everything has calmed down, they're coming and confronting Jesus as he's walking and teaching and saying, who are you to come into the temple and do this? If the Romans did this, there would have been a revolt like there was with the Maccabees. So who, who, who do you think that you are that you can come and challenge us in this way? And so they're, they're exercising their authority. And they had the right to come and do this to Jesus or anyone else because, again, they were in charge of the temple ministry. And so it was their responsibility to confront Jesus and say, uh, we did not give you permission to do this, and we give everybody permission to do everything. So if you didn't get permission for, from us, where did it come from? So we see the authority of these men, but we also see the authority of Christ. Why? Because God's law and God's word are sovereign over civil authorities. In this case, even though they are a religious form of government, God told Jesus to do what he did. Jesus says in the scriptures, I only do what my father has given me to do. He wasn't acting on his own. It was the will of his father that he went and cleansed the temple and Jesus apparently was under the impression that the will of his father superseded the authority that they had to tell him what he could and could not do. In other words, it wasn't their temple, it was God's temple. The reason why Jesus is able to go in his father's house and do what he wants in his father's house is because he's the heir, he's the son, it's his house, and he can do what he wants. So you see a conflict, these colliding governments of the government of men coming and saying, what right do you have to do things in our house and the colliding government of heaven coming and saying, it's not your house. I don't have to ask your permission to do what my father has said to do with his house. We, we, what we see here is a concept called sphere sovereignty, and I can't go into all of that. I'm still studying a lot of that myself, but there are spheres of government in the world, Right? Uh, you as an individual have a government. It's called your conscience. God gives it to you to restrain you from wickedness. Even unbelievers have this. Now, they can work against that, and we see that happening. But in general, even unbelievers have a government over their own minds that prevents them from committing atrocities all the time. We have a family government, right? In the family unit, with the way that God has ordained it, with the man being the head of the household, of governing that family and making sure that, that things are being done according to Scripture, that God is being honored with the activities in that family and taking responsibility for that family. We see church government where God has appointed elders to do similarly to, to the local family unit he does with the family of God in the local church, that they are responsible for the care and administration of that local fellowship. Then we see the civil government, which is over believers and non-believers, again, restraining the wicked from doing what they're going to do. And ultimately, above all of those spheres, we see the government of God, the government of heaven, who in the end will judge every human government, every human being, every worldly system, will come underneath of his judgment for him to assess whether uh, they are correct or not. And so, what we see here with, with, these, with these conflicts here is, what do you do when governments conflict? The question you ask is, which government takes precedent? Which one is in a greater sphere over the other ones? So it is not my right as a pastor to tell a man everything that he has to do in his household with his family, unless it's sin. If he wants to raise his kids a certain way, if his relationship with his wife is a certain way, and the way that they work out their relationship and roles and things that they do in the home is a certain way. It is not my right as a pastor of a local church to tell them what to do in their family. They, they have sphere sovereignty in that area. Now, it is my right if they're practicing sin that according to Scripture, God has said this is not permitted in the local church. It is my responsibility to confront that person in their sin for doing that. It's not the civil government's responsibility to confront that person in their sin. It's not our responsibility as a church to tell the civil government how to punish the wicked. All these things are separated out, and yet they all work together 
It is God's job to tell everybody what to do because he owns everything. It all belongs to him. This is called sovereignty. We use the word sovereignty. That's what it means. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. What that term literally means is everybody else is under him. The most powerful human leaders in the world are under him. Uh, The reason why countries like China can exist and oppress Christians is because God permits it. That is the only reason. God can bring oppressive governments to their knees in a day. He's done it. Read the Old Testament. He, he can destroy empires. He, he says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is my slave. I'm making the Babylonian empire powerful in order to punish my people. God did that. They didn't become powerful because they're really smart and rich and powerful in combat. It's because God gave them victory. He gave them resources. He built up their government. And he does the same thing with ours. Why do we have the freedoms we have today? Sure, people fought and died for those freedoms. Sure, there were people that had the ideas for those freedoms, and all those things are wonderful. But the reality is, the reason why America exists right now and didn't end 50 years ago or 200 years ago is because God says. And the reason why it's going to continue on tomorrow is because God says. So they're investigating his eminence here of, uh, who are you? What, what authority do you have to do these things? Jesus had both power and authority over the temple. There's two different things. You can have power to do something that you don't have the authority to do. Like, you have the power to go and physically force somebody to do something that you don't want them to do, but you don't have the authority to do it. For instance, if, if, uh, if you see somebody uh, robbing a store, you may have the power to stop that person from doing that, but you don't really have the authority to do that. A law enforcement officer has the authority to do that, to stop that person from committing a crime. If they're breaking into your house, you have the authority to do something about it. And so you can have power, but not necessarily authority. Not only did Jesus have power over the temple and what happened in the temple, he could make anything that he wanted happen because he's God, but he also had the authority. He had permission from heaven to do exactly what he did. And that's really where the conflict is happening here. So when people question what you believe or do, what authority are you appealing to? This is a valid question that we need to ask ourselves. Uh, if, you're, if you really are a Christian in here this morning, your, your life, your decisions, and especially the way that you think about the world is going to be different from those around you. And as the culture becomes increasingly, uh, it, it loses its residual Christianity like we talked about last week. It loses the cosmetic Christianity that we've had in our culture. That uh, difference is becoming uh, broader. It's easier to spot Christians Uh, now than it was a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago. The contrast is happening. So if you're a Christian, that's going to happen to you. Why? Because you're going to think and act differently than the world does. But the question is, when people press you on that, what authority are you appealing to? Are you doing this because uh, God has told you to think or act this way, or does this just seem right to you? Where are we grounding our worldview, in other words? Uh, There's a, a terminology for this that some, some of you may be familiar with, which is uh, apologetics. Apologetics is, is a science of defending the Christian faith, of how people have defended it all throughout history. There's different schools within that science. One of those schools uh, is called presuppositionalism, which basically means what do you believe when you start doing something? When you start arguing with somebody about God, both of you are assuming things in the beginning, and if you can't agree on what you're assuming, you're not going to come to an agreement. For instance... When you talk to an atheist and you say, you're an atheist because you believe in the Big Bang, you believe in evolution, you believe in all these kind of things, and you're asking the question of, where did all of this come from? The answer is ultimately, I don't know. Okay, well, how can you be sure that God exists if you don't know everything? Because there's other things that you don't know. What if that's one of the things that you don't know? Right? Whereas Christians, we would start and say, because God exists, we just assume that, then everything else exists. So you're starting at two different places, which is why if you're trying to argue with somebody and you're not starting in the same place, you're not going to be able to come to an agreement. And so the method of doing this is when we talk with people about what God's Word says, we don't have to prove that God's Word is true before we use it. In other words... Uh, other methods of apologetics would say, well, let's look at history and archaeology and logic and textual criticism, all these things, to prove that the Bible is true. And then once we've proved that the Bible is true, then we can tell that person what the gospel is, and then they'll believe it because they believe logically that it's true. We believe the Scripture teaches that 
as we've said before, the natural man can't discern spiritual things because they're spiritually discerned. And so if that person is natural, if the Holy Spirit has not worked in their life, no amount of reasoning and convincing and, and sciencing them is going to get them to believe what you have to believe because it's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? What that means is, is when, when we are interacting with culture and when people ask us, what authority are you using? You say the Bible. And when somebody says, uh, oh, well, that's just an old book full of myths and it doesn't really mean anything, then what you do is you just use the Bible and the Holy Spirit will change that person. And so instead of mocking God, they won't mock God, not because you're smart, but because the Holy Spirit changed their heart. And you don't have to have all the answers to everything. Just this week, this is a good illustration, just this week there's a famous apologist, his name is William Lane Craig. Uh, he's done a lot, of, uh, a lot of debates with atheists and things like that. He came out and he said this in a paper. He said, if Genesis 1 through 11 functions as mytho-history, then these chapters need not be read literally. The accounts of the origin and fall of man are clearly metaphorical or figurative in nature, featuring as they do an anthropomorphic deity incompatible with the transcendent God of the creation account. We are not dealing, after all, with miraculous fruit as if God would, on the occasion of eating supernaturally, bestow upon the eater immortality or knowledge of good and evil against his divine will. So that is a Christian apologist telling you that the beginning of Genesis is a myth and that the fruit is just a symbol of something and it wasn't real fruit and it couldn't really do what it said it could do. Now, that's, that would be a great argument for an atheist to make against the Bible, but this man has said that he is a Christian apologist. Why do we disagree with him? The reason why we disagree with him is because God said it was fruit. And if God says it's fruit, then it's fruit. And I don't have to understand all the science and everything else behind it because I don't need God to explain to me how he makes fruit. He can make fruit however he wants. He can make whatever trees he wants, whatever gardens he wants, whatever people he wants. And that is the difference between what Jesus is saying here. I don't really have to explain to you the authority for why I did what I did in the temple. I don't owe you anything. I do what I want because it's my temple. This is the response that Jesus is basically giving them. Of, of, he's entertaining them with a conversation here, but he does not have to justify what he did. He doesn't have to say, well, here's five reasons why it should be okay for me to be in the temple. He just says, deal with it. That's basically his response to them. So we see his eminence investigated. The second thing is we see his dominion displayed in verses 24 through 25, his dominion displayed. Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? So notice here, Jesus controlled the conversation. Isn't that interesting that these Bible experts came to him and when it, they started the conversation, but Jesus was in control of it the whole time. So instead of him taking the bait, he says, well, now I have a question. I have a question for you. So now he's in the driver's seat. It always amazes me how these scholars and everybody come up to him and somehow they, they can never tell him what to do. He's just in control of the conversation. If you want to talk to me, you're going to talk to me on my terms. And, and this, is, this is the way that he does it with them. So he controlled the conversation. He refused to submit to their deceptive questioning. He knew that if he came out and said, it's my father's temple and my father said I can do it and that's why I'm doing it, that was the grounds they needed to, to arrest him right there. And it wasn't time for him to get arrested yet because that was a specific time in the future. And so instead of him falling into the trap that they're trying to set, he actually puts them in a trap. He puts the burden of proof on them because he's preeminent. What does that mean? The burden of proof is if something is an established fact, if, if I tell you what the color of this carpet is, don't get too triggered if you're a Baptist. But if I tell you what the color of this carpet is, which I'm not going to name because I'm not sure because I'm colorblind. But whatever the color of that carpet is, it, it is a fact. And so if you come to me and you say, well, it's not that color. It's this color over here. The burden of proof is on you to prove that everybody else is wrong about, about the carpet. So when you come to Jesus, the Son of God, who John says was the Word in the beginning, who made all things, the temple was his idea. He made the temple. All the ministry in the temple was for him. All the worship was for him. And you go to him and say, well, by what authority do you have to do these things? He's going to say, you're going to actually have to prove that you have authority to come and challenge me. The burden of proof is on them. I don't need to prove myself because I'm the son of God. That's what he's saying. But you do have to prove yourselves. Do you have authority from God? And the question is, did John have authority from God? 
Because if John had authority from God, and I have authority from God, and you're claiming that you have authority, one of us is lying. And so he puts them in this trap. And so he didn't just control the conversation, but he controls the question. He turns it right back around on them and says, yeah, I'll answer yours if you answer mine. Where did John get his power and authority from? And this is fresh on their minds, mind you. I mean, John hasn't been dead that long. Everybody around this, and of course he's walking in the context here of Jerusalem and teaching. And so there's people in public that are hearing this conversation on. They all know who John is too. So when he calls them out and says, okay, well, was John from heaven or not? Was his ministry from heaven? They're getting put in the hot seat. Jesus and John were accepted as prophets by the people, even though they had never been to a rabbinic school or ordained by the Sanhedrin. So the way that Jewish ordination used to work is, is you had a rabbi that you would follow, and that rabbi would ordain you into the ministry, into that teaching ministry. Well, that became corrupt over time of people buying their way into rabbis because, again, this is also a political organization and a religious organization because they worked with the Romans. And so they're doing both of these kind of things, and eventually it ended up getting handed over to the Sanhedrin of you as a council will decide who's ordained and who's not ordained. That way we can make sure that only the people that we feel like are qualified are the ones doing teaching ministry. Well, there's a problem. Jesus and John didn't go to school to be in the ministry. And they didn't go to the Sanhedrin and ask permission to start preaching and teaching and doing miracles and doing all these kind of things. They did not go to the civil government to ask for authority to do God's ministry, in other words. And we don't either. Uh, We do not need the government to tell us what we can or cannot do in this building because this building is actually an embassy of another nation, of heaven. And so what happens in this building is not under the purview or the jurisdiction of the civil government because this gathering here uh, that we're in today, uh, we are gathering not as American citizens, we are gathering as heavenly citizens. And in the same way, we do not have the right to take everything that we believe and forcibly impose that onto a civil secular government. In other words, This is the reason why we actually would agree with the separation of church and state. It is not good for our church to be the state. And it's not good for the state to be the church. When those things mix together, we have a lot of problems, as we've seen throughout history and even today. So we do not want to mix those things. So how did he control it? It's because this whole conversation, this whole issue, the whole idea of John's baptism, the whole idea of his authority, is under the jurisdiction of heaven. So what he's saying is, um, you guys... Uh, we're not given authority from God in order, in order to question me on this, but I was given authority to question you. It's under my jurisdiction to do that. So we, we like theology here. A lot of our people like theology. And confessions and theological definitions are wonderful, but they're only powerful when they're grounded in the Word of God. We use things like the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith here. It's great. It's a good summary of doctrine. Uh, it has no power. If you take the scripture references that it's tied to out, it has no power whatsoever. God's not going to honor it. He won't bless it. It's not going to help you live a holy life. It's not going to lead you to Christ. The only reason why it has any value at all is because it is tied to the scripture. The, the preaching from this pulpit that happens every week, if it is not grounded in the text of scripture, it is powerless and useless. This is why we see churches of all different shapes and sizes that are like we saw last week. They have the appearance of fruit, without having any actual fruit. Why? Because there's no power in their preaching. Why? Because they're preaching five steps to being a better dad instead of preaching the Bible. That, that's essentially what it comes down to. And so if we want power in our church, if we want power in our lives, that comes from the Word of God. That is the source that it comes from. That's what He's given us. So because Jesus knew that His commission to do this came from the throne, directly from the throne, He had the confidence to drive the conversation. He, did, he, did, he didn't say, well, let me go talk to my manager. He said, this came from the throne of heaven for me to come and do this, and I did it. And if you have a problem with it, you have to take that up with the Father. Uh, I'm just doing what my Father's told me to do. So what have you done recently in obedience to Christ that's caused other people to question you? Maybe, maybe you didn't cleanse out a temple. We don't have a temple today. Maybe you weren't turning over tables in Jesus' name. I don't know that there's a whole lot of situations right now where that's warranted. But what's something that you've done in your life where people have caught into question, like, hey, wh- why would you do that? Right? Maybe, uh, maybe you got offered a promotion at work, and you realize it, with that promotion at work, you're not going to have enough time for your family or to serve in the church, and you turned it down. And people would say, why would you do that? Why would you turn down more money? Well, it's, it's because I'm a believer. It's because 
being a, serving the Lord is important to me. Taking care of my family is important to me. What, they, what have you done in your life that's caused people to question? Like, that just doesn't seem like what most people would do. And then here's the trick question. If you feel really spiritual, if you, if you immediately thought, oh, I definitely did something last week that represented Jesus, here's the one for you. Did you do that because of Scripture or because of moralism? Did you did it because you thought it was going to make you a good person or it was going to make you look spiritual in front of people? Or was it actually biblical what you did? That's a question that we need to ask ourselves. The third thing I want us to see is his question contemplated. Look at verses 26 and 27 there. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So what Jesus is doing here is what's called a forked attack. So if you've ever played chess, uh, there's a position that you can be in in chess where you do what's called a fork. It's where you attack two pieces, two of your enemy's pieces simultaneously. You leave them in a position where they can't keep all of their pieces, and they have to decide which one they want to lose because you've put them in a position where they have no other choice but to give up one of their pieces. This is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's putting them in a situation where he's saying, I'm attacking you on whether or not John's actually from from heaven, whether his ministry is from heaven, but I'm also attacking you on whether I am or not. And either way, you're going to lose. If you deny John, then you've denied me, and the people believe that John's a, a prophet. And so you're going to make the people angry. But if you affirm him, then you're condemning yourself because you've obviously uh, were against his ministry and against my ministry. So now they came to trap him, and they've entered a situation where they can't win. There's people watching. What are they going to say? And they're probably going to get stoned to death if they say John wasn't a prophet or Jesus wasn't a prophet. And they're going to lose all their credibility if they said that he was, and they're the spiritual leaders of Israel that ignored the final Old Testament prophet that God sent to his people. So there's no way for them to win here. Jesus has put them in a bad situation. So how did he do this? First, he questioned their faith, which is interesting. You you ever notice how many times, Pastor Chris is pointing this out, how many times Jesus says, have you not read or don't you remember in the scriptures where it says, which is just poking in their eye because these guys are are the biblical elite of their day of knowledge of scripture. You know, rabbinical school, you memorize the entire first five books of the Bible word for word by the time you're 13. These guys know the Bible, and Jesus is saying, haven't you read the Bible? Don't you know what the Bible, like, don't ask me, don't you know what the Bible says about this situation? It's just constantly provoking them and making them look bad in public. So here he's questioning their faith and basically saying, you guys are supposed to be spiritual. You're supposed to follow God. Well, all these people believe John was from God. Do you believe he was from God? And just puts them on the spot. Do you really, do you really believe that, that uh, God sent a prophet with John the Baptist? And so uh, one commentator said it, it would have profited them nothing, even if he had answered directly, since a darkened will cannot discern what is of the light. So even if Jesus had come right out and explained all of this to them, it, it wouldn't have worked. They, they were not ready to receive it. They did not want to hear it. They were not interested in coming to Jesus for him to instruct them on the truth of God. They were there to get him out of their way. They were there to trap him. They were there to arrest him. But he also questioned their humility because they knew that his authority came from heaven. Well, how do we know that? Well, one of the ways we know that in John 3, when Nicodemus, one of the Sanhedrin, comes to Jesus tonight and says, teacher, we know that you're from God because of the works that you do. And they have this conversation about being born again where Jesus is explaining to him, your Bible knowledge is not going to save you. And your temple ministry is not going to save you. And your position in the government is not going to save you. Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus explains that to Nicodemus in John 3. And so in the same way that they saw the works John the Baptist was doing and knew that he was a prophet and denied it, they've also seen the works that Jesus is doing and denied it. Jesus told them at one point, even if someone was raised from the dead, you still wouldn't believe. And history proves that that's true. That even today, they still don't believe today even though someone had risen from the dead. Many people, actually. MacArthur points out that every false religion hinges on man's accomplishment, but the gospel hinges on God's accomplishment. And that's a big difference here. These men, their entire religion was built on what they had done and not what on God had done. 
So what do we learn from the way Jesus deals with the, uh, with the uh, Sanhedrin here? We need to be ready for intellectual combat. Uh, Christians are a reading and writing people. If you study your church history, all throughout history, Christians have prolifically been reading and writing. Even in the Roman Empire, when illiteracy was normal, it was Christians who were learning to read and write because they were writing defenses of their faith and they were writing letters to other churches like Paul did and they were trying to put the, all the books of the Bible together so that they could have a complete Bible. They were a, a literate people that, that were challenging the culture with words. And that's where we have to be today. Let's be honest. I, now, I'm not, uh, I am not a certified grammarian or I don't have an English degree like some of you in here do or almost do. Um, but at the same time, if you're a good reader, you'll notice that you can read major publications today and there's like clear typos in there. I see this stuff all the time, news headlines, different things, and I'm, I'm wondering to myself, who's, who's the editor? Like who got that job as the editor of this magazine or newspaper that's letting this stuff slip through? And it's either, either they're just not reading it at all or the, the reading comprehension and spelling and grammar is just so low that they're not able to, to, to even discern that there's a problem. As Christians... We need to do this. I, we homeschool our kids, and I tell my wife, the number one thing I want my kids to do is learn how to read. If you learn how to read, you can learn everything else. That, that's the foundation. And of course, being people of the book, we have to be able to read well and understand in order to understand God's Word. And so and this is also why we translate the Bible, right? Because it's not just enough for me to tell somebody. I want to say, you read it for yourself in your own language and see what God has said. And, and then they're standing on God's word and not on my testimony. And so Jesus was ready for intellectual combat. He knew what he was talking about. He knew what the Bible said. And when they wanted to come and challenge him on these kind of things, he was prepared to give a defense uh, for what he believed. He was prepared to defend himself. We need to stop protecting our beliefs as Christians as though they were threatened by secularism or humanism. One of the problems that we have made as Christians in America is we are afraid that an atheist or some you know, mean agnostic or something is going to come destroy our faith. We forget that this is a faith that has endured heavy persecution, heavy argumentation. Uh, philosophers, theologians, politicians, you name it, has endured all of this for thousands of years of people that are way smarter than all of us. We forget that if this faith is actually true, it cannot be destroyed. If you're a Christian and somebody defeats your argument for Christianity, that is not God's fault. That's your fault for not understanding this, the truth of the Scriptures. And I know that sounds like a harsh claim, but at the same time, if, if, if Christianity could be so easily destroyed, it would have been already. There are people that have dedicated their lives to deconstructing the Bible. Go look at archaeology sometimes. You don't see a whole lot about that on TV. They're finding stuff all the time, even this year where some atheist gets a wild hair of like, well, I read this in the Bible, and we've never seen that before. I'm going to go prove it wrong. Oh, wait, here's an entire empire we didn't know about, except for the fact that the Old Testament talked about it. That's happened before. It was the Hittite empire. If you go and look at archaeology, it's happening all the time. So why are we acting like we're afraid that someone is going to deconstruct our faith? The reason why is, is because we are not grounding ourselves in the Scriptures, and we're not preparing our minds for intellectual combat. Quick example, uh, one of my first jobs when I was the first couple of years of college, I was working at a coffee shop, and I would sit in there, and I love coffee shops because you can talk to people, there's all different kinds of people. This guy started coming in every day for like four hours and typing on his laptop, just every day. He's just in there drinking coffee and typing on his laptop. So finally I go over to him and I just say, hey, what are you working on over here? And he's like, oh, I'm actually a college professor and I'm on a sabbatical right now, so I'm writing a book on my sabbatical. And I said, interesting. I said, well, what do you teach? And he said, I teach philosophy. And I said, oh, cool. I'm actually taking a philosophy class right now. And he, he says, really? He's like, which philosophers are you studying? And I said, we're doing Nietzsche, Plato, and Gandhi, or the three philosophers that we're studying. And he's like, that's terrible. He said, if you really want to understand philosophy, you have to look at Christians. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, all the greatest philosophers, people like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and and, you know, Soren Kierkegaard and all these others were Christians that wrote philosophy that all these secular people built their philosophy off of. And he said, I think it's really funny that you would study somebody like Nietzsche, but you wouldn't study somebody like Augustine, who was one of the most influential philosophers in all of history. And so he reminded me 
Don't be intimidated by people. We, 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 are, we are an intellectual people as Christians, and the reason why is because we have a reasonable God that has made things, and he wants us to know and understand him. That's why he gave us his word. And so if we know Scripture and we stand on Scripture, we do not have to be afraid of other ideas that come to attack us because they're not dealing with us. They're dealing with God. Jesus was not concerned about their questions because he already knew the truth. They could bring whatever questions they want. It wasn't going to change who God was. It wasn't going to change his authority of what he said. And that's not going to happen to any of us. Your friends, family members, college professors, anybody, they have no argument that can come against the word of God and prevail. And if you don't believe that, then, you, then really you need to question your faith because your salvation is dependent on that same word. If Jesus has not raised from the dead, as the scripture said, then we have no hope, is what Paul says. And so if you're hoping, based on the word of God, that you're going to be saved one day, then you can also hope that no internet blogger or anybody else is going to completely destroy Christianity because they, they got an idea that they thought nobody else has had before. And so Jesus settled his sovereignty here with them. Uh, uh, From this time on, the only uh, things that he's offering to the Sanhedrin are warning and condemnation. We're going to see that even next week as he begins teaching of just condemning them at this point, of saying, listen, you guys, God's judgment is on you. We saw that with the fig tree, and he's going to continue on doing that. And so the the chances for them to turn around, he's not casting pearls before swine anymore, and those chances are gone. So God doesn't owe us explanations for his decisions. And so in conclusion... What do we learn about this with these two governments that are colliding here? What, what are some takeaways? I want to give you guys some practical things. Some of you have said, hey, there's a lot of issues going on in the world today. We need more instruction on this. And I want to give you a few statements based on this and, and, and other things that I hope will be helpful to you. First, there is a time to resist and challenge earthly authorities. I want to say that clearly. Uh, as much, Paul says, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. And as much as we can be at peace with authorities over us and not compromise on the word of God, we should. We don't want to be troublemakers. We're not trying to be rebellious. Uh, we, we never want to try to commit acts of violence against people or, or unnecessary protests or anything like that. However, as I listed at the beginning, there are examples in Scripture. There is a time to resist earthly authorities when they overstep their jurisdiction into the people of God. They, they do not control what God says, but God does control what they say. So what do we do when civil government collides with our heavenly government that we're under? We stand firm in our obedience to King Jesus, and we herald his sovereign authority over every human government. This is the reason why people are in prison in many countries, is because the government said, you can't worship Jesus like that, and they said, I don't have to answer to you. This is Jesus is Lord of what's happening here, and you can deal with him in the end. He will be your judge. And they end up going to jail for, for saying and, and, and acting that way. We're very fortunate that we are not in that situation as Christians today, but if that day were to come, we need, we, we need to proclaim, uh, long live the king. Jesus is king. What outcome... Uh, do we seek when we resist human governments? What are we wanting to get out of it? This is an important question. And again, I'm just like pushing through this. There's a whole lot more here, but what's the outcome? So let's say a situation happens and we do resist the government. What is the outcome of that? It's different than maybe what you're hearing on the news. The outcome isn't, well, we're just going to get a Christian candidate into the presidency and all the political houses, and we're just going to fix everything from the top down. That's not the answer. That's not the answer that Scripture gives. That's not the goal that we should be having. What's the outcome that we seek? We seek that hearts would be convicted by the truth of the gospel, changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that peace would come upon every person who submits to the Lordship of Christ. So, so how, does, how does Jesus exercise his sovereignty over the world? He doesn't do it by overthrowing governments. He does it by overthrowing hearts, one heart at a time. This is how he exercises his sovereignty in the world. And so are we seeking a transformation of government systems or legislation? Is the solution better legislation? Is the solution a better form of government or better officials in government? Our hope is not in human governments or legislation. That's not where our hope is as Christians. Our hope begins with the changed heart of of the next person that you proclaim the gospel to, and it extends to the ends of the earth, converting people and not institutions. We are not interested in converting governments. We are interested in converting people. And if we put as much effort into thinking about 
the voting that we do as we do in sharing the gospel with the next person that we come into contact with, we wouldn't have to worry about the government issue. God will take care of that. And so we need to be focused on conversion of hearts, not conversion of institutions. So finally, uh, Herman, Herman uh, Bovink said it this way, which I think was a really good way to summarize it. He said, the gospel is not a revolutionary force, but a spiritual and reforming one. It acknowledges and honors all legitimate authority rooted in creation's institutions and opposes only the sin and deception found in all areas of life. The persuasive reform it seeks comes through the power of the proclaimed and lived gospel. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I just ask that uh, everything that is, is profitable and honors you would be heard and anything that is not would be ignored. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. For, forgive us where we think too much about earthly things and not about heavenly things. Lord, we want to be people in a church that's submitted to you. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We, we say things like that a lot, but we don't think about it a lot. And the reality is, Lord, when, when we look at the governments of the world, uh, there's not a good one out there. They're full of, of sinful people. And, Lord, we can't rely on them for our salvation. We can't rely on them for hope. And, Lord, we know that there is a government that is perfect, that is ruled by a king that is perfectly just and punishes all wickedness and yet is full of mercy and invites people to come into his kingdom. Lord, we thank you for those of us here today that are saved because we were brought in to that kingdom because we were born again as citizens of heaven. Lord, if there's one this morning that has not, I pray that they would not hear political statements or conversations about government, Lord, but that they would hear their need to be a citizen in your kingdom and that your Holy Spirit would draw them, Lord. And, and as we said today, it's not going to be by fancy arguments or theological words, but it's only by the power of your Spirit that they will come to you. So we ask for you to do a perfect work this morning uh, that only you can in each one of our hearts that you would draw us closer to you, that we would be more in submission to you today than we ever have in our whole lives, and that we would go out this week uh, being thankful for the freedoms that we have as citizens of America, but more importantly, proclaiming that the King is coming and that we, that we want to be on his side when he comes and that we want everyone else to be also, Lord. And so we ask that you would give us gospel victory this week as we go and proclaim that word uh, to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen.